Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode is two of drag racing's greatest voices, Bob Fry and John Lundberg. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. We're talking the 2020 schedule and we're talking to legends. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace! With a bonus tribute to Dave McClellan. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Brian Loans, and we got some stuff to talk about here. As just yesterday, the day before I'm recording this, the NHRA dropped the revised 2020 schedule, which, of course, is a tentative schedule because everything in the world right now is tentative and based around people's recovery from the virus that is uh, racking this country and has been racking itself across the globe. The good news is NHRA has uh, finagled the races, finagled the numbers, finagled the schedule to include a total of 19 events in 2020, down from what was a planned 24. The five races that will not be contested would be the two-wide race in Charlotte, which is going to be a four-wide race late in the season. It is the Epping National event, which hurts me in my soul. It is Virginia Motorsports Park. That's three of them. It is the Las Vegas four-wide race. That is four of them. And the fifth race that would not be contested is the Southern Nationals in Atlanta at the NHRA facility in Commerce, Georgia. Nobody wants to lose a race. Nobody wants to lose any races. I've been getting a lot of social media messages with people saying, oh, my God, I can't believe they, you know, they took it to the West Coast or the East Coast as hard as they did. I can't believe they pulled the race from this event or that event or this venue or that venue. And, you know, the honest answer is I would not have wanted to be one of the people in the room making those decisions because uh, those are some of the hardest drag racing decisions NHRA's had to make in its history. This is an unprecedented deal. And uh, as much as I wanted to see 24 races run, you got to look at the available weeks left in the year. You got to leave yourself a little bit of breathing room in there. If there's a rain out somewhere that you have to move an event and, I don't know if you can assail the logic of the decision makers. You know, there are people saying, oh, they don't like, they don't want our money here in the East Coast, apparently. No, trust me. Uh, any venue, any uh, company that puts on outdoor events that depends on ticket sales wants your money. <laughs> trust me on that. There's nobody that sat there and went, okay, let's rub our hands together and make the Dr. Evil laugh and figure out which tracks we can stick it to here. So, um, there have been some date changes as well. We're going to see that Houston race moved into June. Um, we're going to see some shifting happening later on in the schedule. Uh, so make sure you go to NHRA.com. Make sure you go to uh, any NHRA social media channel. You can get the schedule and read it. Um, other major changes in that 2020 schedule, the fact that six of the races, six of the 17 races that will be tentatively run after uh, the first weekend in June, when the series starts again, we hope, with the Gator Nationals, will be two-day events. And some of those races already were going to be two-day events. Other races have been made two-day events to help ease some of the burden logistically and financially on the teams. Um, obviously, when you take a day out of an event, you're saving significantly on your travel cost um, and some other factors that help the teams uh, try to try to weather some of this storm because uh, as gnarly as it has been, on the financial side for racing sanctioning bodies, it is as as doubly or as maybe doubly as bad for the teams that aren't able to be able aren't able to fulfill sponsor commitments for the number of races they've slated, for the number of events they plan on running. So there's been a lot of 
creative thinking going on in the world of drag racing and motorsports in general, not just drag racing. It's uh, not a singular entity we have going on here. IndyCar, NASCAR, World of Outlaws, I mean, anything with wheels and an engine, um, unless it exists in the virtual space of the computer, has been affected by this. iRacing has been fun to watch. NHRA uh, uh, racers have been competing with uh, racers from all other forms of motorsports. Of course, our friends at Fox Sports 1 have been airing some of those iRacing events, and they will continue to. And, hey, listen, it's better than nothing on Sunday when you can flip the TV on and watch uh, some professional race car drivers get after it in the video game world. It's pretty interesting. So we know that there are five less races on the calendar. We've talked about what those five are. We know that six of the remaining races will be two-day events. And the other major thing that has been greeted positively by some fans, I'd say by a lot of fans, is the fact that there will be no countdown in 2020. So the last piece of the intrigue here in this whole situation is that it has eliminated the countdown. And why did it eliminate the countdown? Well, I, again, wasn't in the room for these decisions, but they're not that hard to dissect when you sit back and you think, why would they Why would they take the countdown away? Well, when you lose five races out of the regular season, the qualifying for the top 10, the making it in, the running the minimum amount of qualifying sessions, just that, it all goes out the window. And what I love about this personally is being able to being able to experience a season of NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing kind of the way it was. Since I have been involved in NHRA Drag Racing, it has been the countdown era. I was not involved uh, before the countdown, so it has always been a countdown-style conclusion to the season. We've had some great ones. I'm not saying that it doesn't work because the proof's in the pudding. Look at Pomona last year with what happened in Pro Stock Motorcycle and in Pro Stock Car. But I always longed for as long as I have been out here doing this, have longed for the ability to have that old-school points-style chase to the end. And we get to see that this year. And we're going to see if that is uh, different in a, I don't want to say positive or negative way, but I guess I am going to say that. Is that going to mean that someone locks this thing up by Indy? Is that going to mean that it goes down to the final round at Pomona? Does this benefit other teams and hurt others. I would say if you've missed races so far, if you've missed any of your events, teams that have decided to sit out some races, uh, you're at a handicap. Now, certainly very early on in the in the going here, but uh, if it comes down to a situation where somebody loses a championship by 10 points and they didn't run the first race or the first two races, that's going to come into the conversation. So the points chase part of it is going to be cool. I think certainly different. I mean, everything else about this season is going to be different. So why not go to that level as well? And uh, we'll find out who can, you know, who can gather those points. It makes the storytelling for us very compelling right off the bat because we can talk about a, we can talk about who's going to be in this race to the finish. Um, really, as soon as we get going in Gainesville again, which again the plan on that is the first weekend in June. I'm not going to rattle off the race dates of every event. I just want you to go to NHRA.com or on NHRA social media to get that. It's like reading a phone book. Um, So make sure you go look at the event dates because, again, there have been some changes. There's been stuff moved around. There's been slots filled the weekend that the series was going to be in Epping, New Hampshire. It will now be in Topeka, Kansas. So um, stuff like that has happened. And what you want to do is go to NHRA.com and get the full scope of that. So... This week's show, 
is maybe a little self-indulgent, but then again, I get to make the show, so I guess every once in a while I get to be self-indulgent. This is a conversation with two people that I hold in incredible esteem, uh, two people that um, have done so much for the sport of drag racing, for helping to grow the sport of drag racing, for helping to keep the fan base entertained in drag racing. I'm talking about Bob Fry, and I'm talking about John Lundberg, and Bob Fry. I'm sure every single person listening to this knows Bob Fry, knows who he is, knows his history with NHRA. Um, and when I talk to Bob, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation here um, because we go into different areas of his life, not just the NHRA stuff. And I feel like you're going to get an education on where this guy came from. And in his very fine Bob Fry style, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a very pleasurable conversation, and he is a, a heck of a guy to, to take some time out of his day to hang out with us here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. And for those of you that don't know this story, I will tell it before uh, before we roll into the interviews. And Bob Fry was instrumental in me uh, getting involved with NHRA Drag Racing. And um, I worked for IHRA for, for years. I was an announcer on the National Event Trail for IHRA for seven, eight seasons, something like that. And um, I kind of got, I didn't say I got burned out on it, but that series was, was evolving to a place where I didn't really, wasn't really having that much fun anymore. So I uh, selectively took myself off that series, uh, went back and was concentrating my time at New England Dragway. Long story short, I meet Steve Gibbs as he is planning the first New England Hot Rod reunion at Epping about uh, six, seven years ago now. And he invited me to announce his race in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I was announcing that race in Bowling Green when Bob Fry came down. He was the MC of the Cackle Fest and I think MC of the awards recognition ceremony they had at that uh, at those reunion events to recognize the legends of the sport. And he popped his head in and asked me who I was and what I was doing there and uh, where I came from. And it just so happened that the very next weekend was set to be the first NHRA national event at New England Dragway. And Bob Fry picked up the phone, called the NHRA home office, and got me a tryout at New England Dragway, my home track, at that event, the very first national event at that racetrack. And so uh, for I'm eternally thankful for everything Bob has done for me in my career, and again, very thankful that he would take the time to hang out with us. The second conversation we're going to have is with John Lundberg, and John Lundberg, um, known as, if you don't know John, John is the, known as the, the voice of drag racing um, from the mid-50s, late-50s, all the way through really into the 1980s. This guy was um, the most traveled, diversified, busy announcer on the planet. Um, there was nobody in the era that John Lundberg existed that announced more races from more people at more racetracks more frequently than John Lundberg. And he is, again, an incredible man. Um, uh, happy to call him a friend as well. And someone that I have often, uh, you know, tapped for advice and tapped for, you know, different, different questions that you have in this business that people who have lived it can answer. And you'll find out that, unbeknownst to me, John Lundberg was a major factor in Bob Fry's career. So I really like the fact that there is this um, this kind of common theme here of, of three guys that are, are interconnected in some little way in this uh, kind of interesting occupation that all three of us uh, are applying or have applied over the course of our lives. So I'm going to start things right now with our first guest, with this interview uh, with Bob Fry. I've pre-recorded these interviews. That's why I'm kind of setting them up in this different this different particular way. But please enjoy this conversation with Bob Fry. And I have to note that at the close of the show, 
we have a very or I've, I've, I've created this kind of very special tribute to Dave McClellan as well. So stick with us, listen, enjoy with Bob Fry, and I'll be back after this conversation. All right, so I'd like to welcome a special guest here, our first guest on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. You know him, you love him. His voice is iconic. His name is Bob Fry. Bob, thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, I'm telling about I had nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all in the same boat. You're down there in the uh, greater tri-state area. I'm up here outside of Boston, and both of us are uh, looking out the windows on a rainy day today. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to get a hold of you and, and John Lundberg is because now that we have this break in the action, it kind of lets me expand the show a little bit and touch some bases that I wouldn't necessarily be able to touch. So um, you and I got to hang out a little bit last summer at Drag Week at ATCO, and I know that's a place that's pretty special to you and your uh, your career. Yeah, it, uh, it was neat seeing you there. Uh, the, the Drag Week uh, extravaganza was impressive, to say the least. I mean, you know, what? watching those cars run, you know, six seconds and 220 miles an hour and then ride down Jackson Road. <laughs> I don't like riding down Jackson Road in my streetcar, you know. I said, and I, I, said I, I couldn't believe it. It was That was an eye-opener. It was interesting to go to an event like that. Uh, I'd read about a lot of them uh, before, but uh, and it was neat to see them down there at ATCO. Yeah, it was cool running into you. I just, uh, I enjoyed getting back there. I mean, I live, I guess if you drive there, it's eight miles from my house to the wow. track. If you could get a four by four and go through the woods it's probably three miles and <laughs> and i can sit here and listen to the car it's funny my wife and i've lived here in town uh in waterford atco for over 40 years from the first year that we were here we had a guy walked around and knocked on the door and I opened up i said can i help you he said yeah my name is so and so and i'm i'm running for mayor and i just want to get out and meet a lot of the people and stuff like this and i said oh i said well we're relatively new here in town i said what you know what are some of the problems he said well one of the first things that we're going to do is we're going to get that drag strip closed down <laughs> and he said by, by the way what do you do and I, <laughs> I told him he said i guess i'm not, i guess i'm not getting your vote are you and i said no i don't i don't think so and i can't remember his name and the drag strip's still there so life is good you know it's kind of amazing that place is um you know that place is very is very interesting in the sense that it has survived as long as it has and it, and it continues to do good business and i know you know every like every track on the east coast and pretty much everywhere it bubbles up every few years that oh they may be in jeopardy of this and that but i want to talk to you about you know basically other than the direction of the racetrack everything else there is probably different from when you started there as a kid but talk to me a little bit about those early days i mean how did you start at echo did you walk in the gate and ask for a job and start you know doing time slips i mean how did that how did that work for you as a kid well it's it's interesting you said that that i walk in through the gate i said i came into the trunk of my buddy's car (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's that's the track you know i i figured after you know 50 years the statute of limitations has run out but you know we we uh we used to go there and it cost five bucks to get in at the time and you know me and my buddy you know five bucks was a lot of money so uh he had a, a 426 plymouth as a matter of fact it was a wedge car 65 belvedere and uh we used to go down there and take turns driving it, but you know we'd we'd pay the first week we went in, so we always got the pit passes that hung from your shirt, you know. So after that, we had three pit passes all the time. But, and I'll, I'll never forget, we used to take turns of who got in the trunk. Said one time, my brother was driving two of us were in the trunk, and he got to the gate, and the guy said, "How many?" And my brother said, three. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the trunk on. <laughs> yeah, some muffled, muffled screams from the back of the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, but, um, but I went down there, and I and I've told the story, and it's the honest to God truth. I said there were three of us, and my buddy had this car that was a pretty nice, you know, pretty fast car for a street car, and 
we figured we we're going to make this great drag racing team and you know set the world on fire and they uh, uh we all took turns driving it and compared time slips and i had the slowest time so they decided i wasn't going to be the driver and <laughs> then the, the car was overheating and my buddy told me you know go up in the hood see what's the matter and i couldn't find the hood latch and they went well you you can't work on it you know and and as we were doing that they made an announcement over the loudspeaker that you know Atka was auditioning for announcers. My buddies both had, you know, this light bulb over their head and went, wow, hey, I know how we can get rid of Bob. You know, so I went up to the tower and, you know, and it's funny, I'll never forget, it was in April of 1966 and I started announcing and, and Jack Micelli, who was one of the, uh, the owners of the track, actually manager of the track, gave me his business card and signed it on the back and said, you know, present this to the gate when you come in next week, you get in for free and, you know, we'll see how this audition goes. And, and I went to like August it kept coming up and kept announcing, and then I, I realized after a while there was nobody else coming up to audition for this job. <laughs> so finally I told him, I said, yeah, I'm just curious. How long how long does this audition go? And they go, oh, no, you got the job. And I went, well, <laughs> and you got free labor for the last five months, you know. So, And I and I got the job. I actually, it's funny because you mentioned you're going to or have talked to John Lundberg. Um, I got the job because Jack, who was the track announcer at the time, was going to go work the NASCAR races, and he was going okay. to go work the next year at their, their Winter Nationals down in the land, Florida. And uh, so I wound up becoming a regular announcer at ATCO, and I'm, I'm one of the few guys, even Lundberg, I don't think, can say, that has ever announced a NASCAR drag race. And I announced several of them. In fact, in my, in my one room downstairs, I got a big poster from the 1967 NASCAR World Finals at ATCO, and I announced that race. So I'm I may be the only guy that ever announced NHRA, IHRA, AHRA, and NASCAR drag races. You know, so yeah. Because um, if John didn't do it, if John didn't do it, nobody else did it, right? So yeah, yeah that, that that's a really neat thing. It was neat. I remember standing on the starting line talking with Bill France at the '67 Winter Nationals here in you know, the '67 World Finals here at Atco. We were, you know, talking drag racing and stock car racing and. You know, I told him you may want to think about putting restrictor plates on those cars and everything, but it probably took him about 20 years to, to but I believe that was my idea. Yeah, yeah. you're claiming credit for that? Okay, I'll, I'm going to make a note yeah. of that. Yeah, I'll put that yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, was it something you knew you wanted to do? Because for me, it wasn't even something I really knew I wanted to do until I started doing it. Like, I didn't wake up one morning and think, this is what I really am dying to do. Now, obviously, it's something I love, and I know it's something you loved for as long as you did it, but was it something at that time that you knew you wanted to to do i actually didn't know that i wanted to do it until i went up that first time and did it yeah and i loved it it was it was so cool I, i've told people before i mean you know everybody in in life has their own little you know niche that they can fall into in fact i i looked at nhra.com yesterday and they had a story about uh, i think it said 10 books that every drag racing fan should read you know and i'd and I'd read seven of them, but I didn't read the one about how to set up your chassis or how to blueprint your engine and stuff because I got no clue, you know. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to do it and and carve out a niche, you know. But again, to answer your, your question, I, I had no design, no thought about doing that um, uh, until I went up and did the first race. And I just absolutely loved it, you know, and, and just enjoyed it ever ever since. When, uh, you know, from when you were a kid, how many years were you at ACO before you, you kind of struck out? And I know you went out with um, IHRA like I did, and I know John did as well. Um, when, kind of how old were you when you first kind of hit the road with IHRA? What was that schedule like? Well, it was uh, 71. I started doing all the IHRA okay. uh, races. 
And in between, I would come back and I'd still work at Atco sure. and I'd still work my morning radio show and stuff. You know, in fact, it, it, it's so funny. You, you think of these little stories and, um, in, I don't know, it might have been 1985 or something. I worked the, uh, I know it's at Maple Grove, one of the early national events there. And Bernie Partridge was there and Wally Parks was there. And, um, we got done the race and for whatever reason, Wally and Bernie and I wound up walking out of the starting line at the end of the night and we're, you were walking on the track and, and Wally said, boy, Bob, I really, you know, I'm glad you're working with us now. He said, cause he and Larry Carrier, of course, were partners oh, yeah. and then we're just bitter enemies. And he, uh, and he said, you know, I always admired your talent. He said, I've sometimes questioned the company that you kept, you know, <laughs> and I, and I snickered a little bit and, and he said, how come you went out to, to work with us and you know, didn't uh, what to work with IHRA and you know, didn't work with us back in the seventies. And I said, that's ah, a, it's a long story. You really don't want to go into it. And, and Bernie Partridge is there, and he's yeah, Bob. We we really want to hear that story. And I said, well, Bernie, it's funny you should ask because I sent a letter out to you and one to Larry Carrier the same day. And Larry <laughs> Carrier will be back the next week, and I still never heard back from you. <laughs> and he went, oh, that's how it happened, and that's really how it happened. I mean, I I sent a letter to Larry. Said I see you're starting this new organization, and you know I'm announcing an ADCO, blah blah blah. And at the same time, I'd sent a letter to, to Bernie and I said, you know, I'm announcing at ATCO, I've done the points finals here for a couple of years, you know, I'd like to expand and everything like this and, you know, I got the call back from Larry and then did their IHRA races for 10 years. Man, that's great. And and what was Larry Carrier like? I've read a bunch of stuff about him. I've read the the lawsuit that he brought, uh, you know, he had the he had sued uh, who did he get into? He got into it with Gary Jim Beck. Tice and Gary Beck. He, yeah, so yeah. he was—he seemed like a pretty tenacious guy, and obviously you have to be in the role that he had. But what was he? Was he as big a character as he seems like on paper? He—he he really was, and and I will say this: back in the mid seventies, that when I was working for them, I'll tell you how big the IHRA had gotten at the point. We were working the Bristol race, and there was talk at the time of plowing over the oval track to make more parking for the drag strip no way that's how that's how big the the drag race was compared to what the nascar stuff was doing at the time but um wow i i i tell everybody honestly larry was probably his own worst enemy i mean you you take a look at some of the old drag newspapers where you know if guys are running cars with decals on that weren't sponsors with him. They actually just put a black marker through it, and that's what the picture, you know, so, I mean, he was he was the classic my way or the highway kind of guy, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, you gave me a great break, and, and I'll never forget when I, it, almost the same situation with what Wally said. I went and, and worked with Lundberg at the at the National Challenge Race in 1972 at Tulsa, one of the first really. Race? Yeah. I had no idea yeah. you worked that race. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, one of the first really big races that I did. And uh, and Larry Carrier, when I told him I was going to work that, and he said, "Well, he said I, I I can't say much for your employer, but I can say that he appreciates good talent." You know, so he wow. was referring to Jim Tice, yeah. like you know, like while he was referring to him. So yeah, I, I worked. It's funny. I, I worked the '72 race and I worked the '74 race. So I worked probably the biggest pro race, the first Tulsa race, then I worked the National Challenge at New York National Speedway, which was just a disaster, you know, so. That first yeah, John, one. John and I worked that race out in, in Tulsa. He, I never get getting a call from him. He called me and said, hey, Bob, you know, I'm, you know, we got this thing going on, you know, I, I appreciate your talent, and would you like to come out and work with me? I went, holy crap, you know. Oh, my yeah, God, so. man. No, that is amazing. I, I knew that he was there, and I had no idea you were there, and that opens yeah. up a whole different kettle of fish, but I mean, that 
the the attitude the the atmosphere at that thing must have been pretty electric because you guys were you know you guys were really thumbing your nose at the boss at that thing it was it was so interesting and i'll never forget they they said you know we're going to close the cards off to staging from the top of the staging lanes at nine o'clock at night for qualifying and i figured wow boy at the end of the night these guys are just going to be you know going like crazy i mean the lanes are going to be full to try to make it into the field at the last moment you know and then what i what i what i didn't think of was that geez you know these guys will have been running since you know <laughs> thursday and their tongues are going to be hanging out you know and rolled around about you know nine o'clock and there was like you know one car in the staging lanes you know dick lahaye's hanging on to the bump spot open <laughs> that nobody's going to knock him out i think he you know this may not be the right number, but he, I think I remember him making two or three runs in the last hour to try to get Holy in, and he finally smoke. gets in on the on the bump spot. And I'm looking, I figure, geez, where's everybody else? You know, and you're you're looking back there, and there's pistons here, and rods there, and oil spilling out there. And, you know, no, nobody had anything left, so it's like last man standing. You know, makes makes the show, but it was just a wonderful uh, event. You know, I remember you know, talking to. Um, Ray Godwin's car and Preston Davis and watching them blow up and having to push it down the track and and then who who made the uh, the deal to split at the end and you know oh Prudhomme knew he was broke and that's why he decided to split and you know are they going to tell you know Baca to <laughs> fix up your car so it won't you know spin the tires it was just it was just a wonderful event and and to this day I say to be to be able to have been a part of that was just so cool especially at such a young age you know I've been announcing for a couple of years then and get you know get called out to work the Tulsa race it was it was just so cool yeah that's amazing man I and I did not know you were there I knew that you were there in 67 when Garlitz won the U.S. Nationals and you were among the throng of people surrounding his Dodge pickup truck as he shaved his face that part I did know yeah I, I keep looking for my picture in there I figured somebody's got a picture <laughs> from a different angle you know so uh, and I'll never forget thinking up in the grandstands. Uh, yeah, you know, Carlos says we're running the sixes and doing. I think I, I'm sitting there and I'm saying to my friends, James Warren hasn't got a chance. I said, this <laughs> this thing can't end any other way except Carlos winning and running in the sixes. I mean, you know, you, you write storybooks like this, and if it ends any other way, people are going to be all disappointed. But yeah. you know, yeah, it was, it was it was so cool. And then of course, when they recreated that a couple years ago at Indy, I was there with them again in the in the winter circle and stuff, and 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 that was neat. So yeah, the '67 Indy was my first. Indy race. My buddies and I were in the service. We decided on, you know, Friday morning we wanted to go out. And we drove out, you know, 12 hours overnight and got there. And, you know, the first ones at the track in the morning and the last ones to leave at night. And, you know, of course, then you went back and drove to all the parking lot hotels to see where everybody was because they took their cars <laughs> yeah, home, right. you know, and stuff. And, you know, and it was funny as we're driving towards Indy, we start getting there and we start seeing you know, cars in the parking lot. And I said, holy crap, we're like, you know, 30 miles from Indy yet, you know. And it was funny because, the, the closer you got to the track, the the higher up the the guys were. There were you know, Prudhomme was probably parked half a mile from the track, you know. And, yeah. You know, uh, you know, whoever was parked thirty miles away, and and Ivo used to park his rig at the expensive hotel and then stay across the street at the cheap one. You know, so. <laughs> you know but it was it was cool. The '67 Indy race was cool. No, it's it, yeah. I mean, that had to have been, and it is a what a life experience. I, I think one of yeah. the things that fascinates me about your career is you're you're the one like the the guy that saw the really the one guy that shepherded this thing through 
the match, the full-on match race era, to the early national event era, to the many national events, to then the real domination of national events in drag racing. And, you know, John Lundberg's career started a little earlier than yours, and certainly uh, he was out of the active business really before we got to a 24-race, you know, NHRA yeah. season. Um, talk a little bit about that, because that transition, especially during the 70s, is fascinating to me, because it really did change, it changed the way the whole sport operated. Yeah, well, it's funny, a couple of things. First of all, you, you keep mentioning John Lundberg, and I want to tell you, he was like my real inspiration. When he came to ATCO and announced and he did that Coca-Cola circuit, I mean, he made up stories and he told stories, and I was sitting on the edge of my seat, and I went, wow, <laughs> just to be able to tell you, you know, you listen to him, you know, and, and they're burning nitromethane, it's a straight-line hydrocarbon, it's a, which of course it isn't, but John said it was such, you know, such stature that you said, wow, geez, I didn't know that, you know. <laughs> you know just, just stories about Dick Burgoyne on the operating table and getting up. I mean, just, I, I was just in awe just listening to him tell those stories. So he was such a, a big factor. And, you know, if there's ever anybody that I said, geez, I, I want to be like that or at least, you know, be mentioned in the same sense or something, I mean, John was the best. I mean, he absolutely was. He could tell a story, he command an audience and, and everything. But anyway, the, the funny thing about the whole transition, like you said, and you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that Atco Dragway is still operating and everything. Um, but it's a completely different thing because, you know, when I started with the match racing, you know, spectator events were how the tracks made their money. Yeah. Now even a good track like Atco might have two or three spectator events and their specialty events during the, the course of the year. I mean, the Drag Week thing last year might have been one of the bigger spectator crowds they had. You sure. know, it's just, it, fiscally, it's, it's tougher the local drag strip, and I say local, I, I exclude a, you know, a Norwalk, you know, that runs their big events and stuff as right. a local track, even though they are. Um, but uh, it's it's so tough for the local tracks to to make money now. You know, back in the seventies, literally, if you had a drag strip and weren't making money, you were an idiot. You know, because <laughs> right. you know all you had to do is basically open your gates and you know announce two funny cars, and they could be you know you know two guys with you know big wheel wells you know qualified as a funny car. And, and you'd make money, you know, yeah. so it, it's tough. You know, I, I tell people I've been doing this so long that I was announcing before pro stock was a class, you know, and uh, and funny cars weren't even running the national events. But it is interesting how it has gone full circle in the beginning. The tracks made money by running their local racers. Then they got all the match racing, and then they had booked-in shows. And then, of course, it's come full circle now that they're back making money on their local racers. And I think one of the reasons why... ATCO has survived over the years. They've had some good operators that have really treated the local races well. And, of course, as you know from being there last year, it's out in the middle of the Pinelands, so there's not a lot of building encroaching upon, you know, their area. But, you know, the match races, I, I remember announcing the big first Wednesday night funny car at, at ATCO in 66, you know, with Shardman and Nicholson and Cecil Yother and Sox. And they, oh, my gosh. You know, people were all over the place. It was like the biggest thing ever. Uh, you know, and still, you know, wow, there were 20,000 people there. I said, well, no, there really weren't, but, you know, it, it seemed like that. But they were great days, the old match. I remember Garlitz coming in and running 200 miles an hour at ATCO, you know. It was it was great to be there for the old match race days. But it's nice to see some, some of these tracks have managed to still survive and still operate. Yeah, it is. Uh, New England Dragway, my home track, one of them kind of of that same age bracket, you know, a mid, yeah. mid-60s racetrack that's still kind of hanging in there, getting the job done. Uh, one of the things that you witnessed firsthand that I witnessed as a kid from my, you know, carpet in my living room watching the, the, the race broadcasts was Bob Glidden during the 1980s. And my question is, was it, as or more impressive to see it in person as it was to watch on television because as I was spellbound by that guy watching him just destroy everybody through the 1980s. Yeah, it was 
it was just literally amazing because you figure, wow, they got big fields of cars, they got all these guys trying, and to have a guy like that who was, you know, basically doing it out of his garage <laughs> was just yeah. breathtaking. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it's one of those things you say, geez, when Bob's there, and you know, the big question was who's going to be the runner-up. <laughs> You know, yeah, right. it wasn't a question who's going to win the race, for goodness sakes. I mean, you know, Bob's going to come in and Bob's going to dominate. and He's going to qualify number one. And, you know, it would be nice to see who winds up, you know, getting in the picture with him in the final <laughs> round, you know. He's just so, so dominant. And then, and then, you know, the people talk about, you know, you know, the good old days of racing and stuff. You know, well, there were days back there where, you know, guys who were a tenth and a half right. better than the number two car. Yeah. You know, not, not the bump spot, for goodness sakes, you know. So, yeah, it was. It, it was amazing, and there were there were guys you know like a Glidden, like a Warren Johnson, and people who just eat, lived, and just breathe this sport. And when they were out there dominating, I mean, it was just it, it's like Frank Manzo when I used to watch yeah. Frank run the alcohol cars and do the alcohol TV shows, and and I'd ask the, the other guys running, I said, when when you see what he does, are you impressed or are you depressed? And they would say, well, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> I said, wow, we're really impressed that he's doing what he's doing, but depressed because we got to run him, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, like I said, it was just spellbinding as a kid to watch that because it was just, can he do it again? Oh yeah, he did do it again. And is he in the finals in Indy again? Of course he is. It's you know what, thirteen yeah. years in a row. It just was, it was phenomenal. And and in any sport, I think um, you know, it goes both ways. I think in any sport, you see the those great teams, those great players, and and you have to at some point, as much as people hate him because they do so well, you have to at some point just start to appreciate how good they, uh, yeah. how good they really are. Yeah, you really do. It's just uh, incredible to watch people at that level uh when you figure that they're racing against the other people who are the best in the sport yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah it's, I mean, not, it's, it's like, not pros versus joes it actually is pros versus pros and you're still just killing yeah everybody. yeah it's like yeah. like you know, you know simone biles in you know, gymnastics or tiger woods in golf i mean i was never a golf fan never watched golf until tiger started doing it because he was doing things that nobody else could do and you know biles in the gymnastics stuff i mean if they had the olympics this year you know if you're a gymnast you're going wow Thank you, God. Couldn't I have been born four years later? Because nobody's going to beat her, you know? No. And that's the way it was with those guys. You, you say, wow, they're competing against the best people in their business, and they're crushing them. One question I've had for you before I let you go is uh, on the live TV front back in the 90s when you guys started doing live television, I'm curious as to how much of a goat rodeo that was. I know that some of our shows even today turn into a goat rodeo behind the scenes with everything that's going on, and we probably have more ability to see and communicate with each other than you guys did back then. So could you talk a little bit about how much of a calamity, uh, probably a fun calamity, but how much of a calamity those early live TV shows were for any trade? Well, it's funny. I, I really can't think that much about that. I, I do remember times like when uh, when Al Hoffman crashed at Gainesville and they're oh, on man. the air and there's a lot of stuff to, to go through and stuff. I, I think um, I, I can't really remember it as being a calamity. I remember okay. you there and you got you, you got to do the stuff, you know. So, um, well, that's good. It, yeah. I remember working with John Mullen. It was interesting because he was so didactic with everything that he did, you know, and you had to be perfect and, you know, let's get it straight, you know. Um, and then it was a pleasure to work with the Diamond P people for all those years. So I, I really can't, I, I don't look back upon them as thinking, wow, that was really just a bunch of, you know, circular <laughs> firing squad kind of thing, you know. It was just it was just a cool thing, a cool thing to do, you know. And, and then uh, working with the, the people, at, you know, the National Network at the time and doing that, it was just it was just a joy. And again, for a guy like me, I went, wow, holy, Michael McClellan's done this and Evan's done this. Now I get a chance to do it. It was, it was just, another part of the evolution you know is really 
just fine. The one thing I remember specifically from the Al Hoffman situation was he has that, you know, it goes through the lights, the thing has this horrendous fire, then he has an even more horrendous crash inside the burning car. Uh, ultimately, obviously, he survives this whole thing, but there was like, they were either giving him, they were like giving him oxygen or like pumping his chest or something on the ground, and Steve Evans did like a stand-up next to him <laughs> as, they're, as yeah. he's laying on the ground. I'm thinking, they would never let us do that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, the, between the OSHA people and the HIPAA people and the you know, the FBI and the CIA and all this stuff, you know. Steve Steve was just the best interviewer. I mean, I'd never get the time when he interviewed Garlis after he flipped over there at Englishtown and came up and you know, they went through the whole deal and he says, Don, you're going to run this car again? I went, Steve, that's really a stupid question. Yeah, and Garlis, I just got things. I'm not that dumb, you know. I mean, look look like he asked Garlis a question about aliens, for goodness sakes, you know. Jeez. You know, yeah, there was there were some interesting moments with yeah. with Steve down there, but he was absolutely the best at what he did at the end of the track. Yeah, the rapport that he had with everybody was very clear, and it would come through. You know, you could see he would pose questions to people, and 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 he could maybe push things, or he could he could ask things in a way that that you can ask certain things to people that you know and that know you that know you're not trying to you know throw them under the bus or trying to make them yeah. look bad. You know what I mean? It was yeah. uh, it was and, cool. And I remember that at that '67 Indian Nationals, I went to one of the parties I got invited to as part of the gatherings whatever and and Steve was there in the hotel and I talked to him I said Steve I'm Bob Fry and uh, someday I'm going to do what you're doing he just you know like pat me on the head give me a lifesaver and go yeah good luck kid you know (laughs) that's awesome Bob I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh to spend some time with us here on the podcast it's great I know people are going to love it and uh always cool getting some insight onto your uh into your background and always great to to check in with you hopefully your historical data gathering continues strong well, it's it's funny you say that because I was I was expecting you to say you know what are you doing these days and I said well last week a guy called and asked me if I knew who had qualified number one the most in the top gas class and I went I I don't but I do now you know, so, you know, so so now cool. I've got the entire list of you know, low eat number one low eat and top speed and top gas for their 39 short-lived national events wow yeah because i I hate when somebody calls and asks something and i don't have the answer you know so yeah well that's i guess that maybe that keeps you on your toes there's always another question uh coming around the corner i guess right yes yes there is and it's 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 fun finding the answers you know so well good luck to you guys doing a great job there i know it's uh trying to fill all the time and everything we hope that everybody gets it's back to racing and stuff like this but you're doing a great job brian and uh, you know keep up the good work thank you very much bob fry and i'll be hanging up with you and picking up with mr john lundberg so i will send him your best very cool thanks thanks bob so much fun to talk to bob fry get the stories of his upbringing in the sport of drag racing kind of learn where he came from and how he came to be one of the most iconic voices in the history of the sport next up as i promised it is john lundberg a man who did everything and saw everything multiple times over the course of a career where he watched drag racing come from a very kind of infant sport into the full-on professional motorsport that we know it is today. They called him Thunderlungs, they called him the voice of drag racing, and it is my pleasure to show you and here have you here this conversation with the great John Lundberg, one of my personal heroes, one of the greatest drag racing announcers who has ever walked the face of the earth. All right, so after having a great conversation with Bob Fry, we now move to our second guest. And if there's one thread kind of running through this particular podcast, 
this week on the NHRA Insider. It's uh, it's guys who have uh, kind of strange connections or good connections. Our second guest is John Lundberg, and as you heard me discuss a couple of times with Bob Fry, uh, John Lundberg, a guy that we both uh, kind of hold in very high regard for his skills as an announcer. He is known as the voice of drag racing, now now retired, but for a span of a couple of decades, John Lundberg was the premier announcer in the sport of drag racing. He helped Bob Fry get a leg up in the sport. Bob Fry helped me get a leg up in the sport, and I welcome Mr. John Lundberg from his home in Tucson, Arizona. How are you doing, John? Uh, Brian, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It is, uh, it's my pleasure to have you on, and um, you know this weird break we have in our season has afforded me the ability on this podcast to really kind of spread out my spread out my wings a little bit and, and touch some some topics that I've always wanted to, and one of them is to have uh, you know a couple of very inspirational figures to me uh, on the podcast, you being one, Bob being another, and you know I just want to pick your brain a little bit and have some fun here, and um, I know you you're down there in the the vehicle evaluation business down there in in, in Arizona. And I guess I should ask first, how are the hot rods down there? <laughs> oh, the hot rod! The hot rods just get more beautiful all the time. We have uh, we have two uh, street rod display events here, uh, put on by good guys every year. And every year I walk through, I'm just more and more amazed at the craftsmanship and the execution of those incredible vehicles. Uh, by the way, I would like to mention in passing uh, that in uh, October of last year. Uh, we officially closed the vehicle appreciation, uh, appreciation side of my enterprises as uh, I'm now in full, complete, 100%. Uh, not quite used to it yet, retirement. <laughs> well, good for you, man. Good for you. So, you know, I, I guess the, the, the point of that, you know, the point of that for me is that, you know, your life spent from the 1950s until you decided to retire was spent immersed in this world of hot rods and in the aftermarket and of course in drag racing and that's really what i want to talk to you about today is um you know maybe some touchstones of your career maybe some moments that i find to be very very awesome for you and and one of the guys that a lot of nhra fans may know in passing or have heard of in passing is is ej potter a guy that rode a v8 powered motorcycle that came off a kickstand in the in the 1960s and 70s and my understanding is as a young man in michigan you saw him make his very first runs on a bike he called the bloody mary right well absolutely uh, uh i was announcing at that point uh drag racing on a weekly basis at what is now the then Michigan Motorplex, which was then Central Michigan Dragway, okay. and uh, Roger Huntington, a very prominent technical writer of that era, was constantly involved in bringing new things to that drag strip, and we began to hear a story about a guy in a nearby town who was riding around the city on a Chevy V8-powered motorcycle, <laughs> and and... I mean, I'm, you know, aghast, uh, and, uh, and and about three weeks later, boy, here he was, and uh, and it it looked the vehicle looked like it was an accident waiting to happen, and and I and I said so over the public address system, and and, uh, and EJ and I became good friends, and he was a very serious competitor, and uh, and but he did recall the fact that. On his initial run, the local track announcer was not too enthusiastic about what he created. <laughs> and and anyway, uh, I will say this about E.J. Potter. Um, in 1997, uh, I was uh, at Virginia International Motorsports Park uh, 
for a super stock drag racing illustrated magazine reunion event. Okay. And EJ showed up. Or EJ showed up. And he had sold the last fuel injected 302 small block powered Bloody Mary to a collector. And the guy restored it and got it running. Now, EJ Potter climbed on that vehicle after having not been on it in a quarter century and rode that puppy through the end of the quarter mile at 157 <laughs> miles an hour. Oh, he was a man's man. He was a man's man. He, uh, what a guy. I, I, you know, I was in college. I was in college when his video and his uh, his book came out, and you know I I scraped up some money and I called the number that I saw in Hot Rod Magazine to buy it, and lo and behold, he answered the phone, and um, I maintained loose contact with EJ, um, you know, until he passed away several years ago. But man, he was a hell of a guy. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. You know, and I, I kick it I kick it off with you with the EJ Potter story because your career in drag racing is fascinating to me because um, you know, you're not the voice of XYZ. You were you were considered the voice of the sport because of how diversified your work was. You were, you know, Coca Cola Cavalcade of Stars, you were AHRA guy, you did IHRA events. And I, I wonder can you can you value one or certain things more than others over the course of your career? Can you place a little bit more weight on certain things you did versus, versus other events? I mean, what are the things to you that rise to the, that rise to the top of your personal chart? Well, I think the thing that rises to the top of my personal chart is that what I tried to do was to bring the fan to the sport and the race and the, and the racer to the fan. Um, I, you know, I was involved in the very early, not the earliest, but the very early days of the sport, uh, build a few cars of my own. And uh, one of the things I always did was to spend a lot of time in the pits because I wanted people to know what was going on. And, and, uh, and so what I would do is, uh, if I was going to go particularly to an independent drag race, um, I'd pick a car in the middle part of the field, um, a sea altar, okay? okay? And I would literally follow that car and the guys through the event so that people could understand how that whole process of the sportsman side of the sport worked. And or I'd pick out a top fuel competitor, uh, one of the lesser known teams, and follow them through the sport. The idea being able to get people who, who were not drag racing enthusiasts enthused about the sport. Because my job, if you will, as a drag racing announcer at that point, was if, if I was going to be of value to the track operator and to the abandoned tour, the sponsoring association was to get people to come back. Right. You know, it was in, it was impossible no matter what I said or did for me to probably add one person to the grandstands before the event, but I could certainly make sure that they were entertained and informed enough informed enough to want to come back yeah no that's a it's a fantastic point and um it's something that i've certainly taken from your work and your advice and coaching over the years and and the and it's uh you provided to me you know there are uh, several foundational guys i think in this in this genre of i don't even want to call it work but in this genre of of activity and you're one of them that certainly provided um a roadmap and and you know, the, to me, the, the signature of a good announcer or good anything is you, you, you kind of take your own personal spin to things. You take your own personal vision to things. But there is a set of rules, I think, that should be loosely followed. And, and you're one of the guys that helped to, to build that framework that uh, myself and I'm hoping other guys behind me are following. One of the things that 
I'm very interested to, to talk to you about is you were you were an announcer when the first scoreboards, and I don't mean the very first, but when scoreboards first came into drag racing, how much of a transition was that for you? Because I have heard vintage audio of you calling events at tracks that I know didn't have scoreboards, and I've heard audio of you calling events after the tracks had scoreboards. That is a major process change, right? Well, it was a major process change, and you know, a major process change for me operating at Central Michigan Dragway uh, was the uh, was the appearance of an illuminated winter picker because gotcha. when I first started announcing drag racing there, uh, there were two guys at the finish line, one with a red flag, one with a green flag at the end of the quarter mile uh, on either side of the drag strip, and whichever flag waved, that was the winner of the race. And if it was close, every once in a while they disagree, and we'd have to have a rerun. Okay. So, uh, yes, scoreboards were marvelous because, because what you could do is you could direct the fan immediately to the results. And, uh, and, and I actually uh, spent a lot of time playing that up, and I think perhaps my most spectacular result uh, was in the spring of 1988 at the Motorplex when I announced Eddie Hill's 499 pass. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, the, the, the place erupted, okay, and, and what I did, because you could just sense that it was that it was a minute pass, okay, and it was going to be really good, and so, boy, from about halfway down the track to the finish line, I'm telling them, to look at the scoreboard, look at the scoreboard, look, and boy, when that 499.5 came up, the place just erupted. There is uh, audio of you, and uh, you know, uh, if you remember the moment or not, it's fine. But there is audio of you on YouTube that is spectacular, and I've I've played it for guys. I've listened to it a hundred times. I've played it for guys that are young, kind of up and coming announcers to kind of show them an example of, of who you were and how you worked. And this was a run from like 1973. It's a it's actually Captain Jack McClure in his rocket go kart. And the, the best part about it to me is. You work the crowd up, and, and you can feel like you're listening to this audio through YouTube, and you can feel the energy of the place wanting to climb through the speaker. And I, I don't believe at that point, I'm not sure if they had speaker, uh, if they had uh, scoreboards at that point or not, but you uh, you kind of set up the run. He makes the run, and you know the place is dead silent, and you go to this, you know, Jack McClure of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, has just traversed the quarter mile, and the energy is so spectacular. And I, I was, I'm interested in your answer because, um, it interests me because I would have thought in some ways that it took a little bit of that magic away, that it took a little bit of the PT Barnum out of it. But I like the fact that you said that it actually provided a little bit more direction or a little bit more kind of storytelling ability. Well, thank you. Um, and that's because at that point, uh, you know, uh, to a greatest extent that the, uh, uh, dragsters were still a uh, push started at many tracks and, and, and what we developed in, in the wake of that uh, was a pattern of storytelling about the cars, and uh, particularly when McClure ran that rocket-powered uh, go-kart against something, uh, you know, you wanted, to, you wanted to tell the people uh, and build the anticipation to the race. And that, and that all was developed, by the way. Uh, when I was the track announcer at Detroit Dragway, during the beginning, middle, and end of the muscle car era, sure, because you could, because you could build mark enthusiasm as the cars came to the starting line, and you didn't say, in most cases, I didn't say Joe Smith 
or Art Baker won, I would say, and the winner is Ford, and, you know, the idea was the joint went crazy, and that's what I cared at that point in my life to produce, and this worked out well because I got hired a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you did get hired a lot in a million different places, and... And also within that within that realm, you were very diversified in you know you were very early in on the making television making drag racing television game. When did you first go on television to talk about drag racing? Because it was early. Yeah, it was early. Um, I actually, interestingly enough, it was 1954. Wow. Um, I was a junior in in high school, and my English teacher George uh, Miller um, uh, contacted. Uh, Michigan State University Television, WKAR-TV, about doing some live-action, on-the-scene television programs on public television. Okay. And one of those, and and of course, in in August of 1954, uh, NHRA sponsored the second, or sponsored one of their NHRA safety safaris at an entrance road to the Chevrolet Spring and Bumper plant in Livonia, Michigan. Four lanes wide, half a mile of concrete, okay? And uh, and George took uh, a team from the KAR down there, and I was strictly a, um, uh, you know, an, kind of an expert witness to guide him in this because he definitely was not a car guy. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and as a result of that, uh, you know, I wound up with a camera on me talking about cars. So that was the first time, and perhaps... Then the second time would have been uh, the 1965 uh, AHRA Winter Nationals at Beeline Dragway uh, when Ben Crist recorded that entire event for presentation, uh, first of all, to uh, on pay-per-view television and then in movie theaters across the country. Yeah, that is, and that was a that was a pretty. I mean, Ben Chris was obviously a forward thinking guy in the sport, and and that became um, it's kind of one of the forgotten things in drag racing. I think you know there was the the closed circuit broadcast of a lot of races went on for what a ten or fifteen year stretch. That was that was a fairly common practice for a while before you know television as we know it today was existent or the internet, of course. But yeah, I didn't realize Ben Chris led the charge on that as well. Well, he did, and uh, it was a it was very much a pioneering effort. And um, and I got to be fully involved in the process, which was absolutely fascinating. Brian, I got to tell you a little cute story about <laughs> about that event uh, at Beeline Dragway. The guy who came past the tower in the right-hander spectator lane uh, had to come around the tower and literally move to turn his car and direct it over about eight or ten feet to make proper staging in the uh, in the right-hand lane of the drag strip. Okay. And at that time, uh, TV cameras, uh, uh, particularly those carried on the shoulder of those very adventuresome guys who film it, uh, you know, they weighed, weighed 7,500 pounds, okay? And they were huge. And there was this guy with me on the top of the tower who was a cameraman, and he was going to get whatever shot would make the TV program work, and, and I told him when they started running around a top fuel illuminator, look, don't, you know, don't throw that thing over the edge and try to shoot down on one of these guys. Because if the guy burps the throttle, you're going to get a face full of nitro and have a bad afternoon. And the guy looked at me and said, yeah, right, 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 right. So sure enough, boy, next car around, right hand comes up in front of the tower and pulls her up short and his guy's pushing back. 
and this guy has this camera literally on his shoulder, 75-pound camera on his shoulder, over the top of the tower rail, shooting down on the top of the car, which was an amazing shot, but the guy went, whoa, and he got a face full, and he did that with that act. <laughs> and did you look at him and say, hey, man, I warned you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't really have to say much because the look on his face when he finally got the camera back on his support rack was all I needed to see. <laughs> who was uh, who was your prom- favorite promoter to work for? Because you worked for some of the most charismatic guys this sport has ever seen. Whether we're talking about Ben Christ or Jim Tice or Larry Carrier, you know, you worked for the guys, the real. Renegade, not to say renegade, but the real mavericks in drag racing were the people that you spent most of your time with. And among that group of maverick guys, who who stands out as maybe the most fun or maybe the least fun? I don't know. Well, uh, let's see. Um, I think the most innovative in, during my time of service in the sport, okay, and there have been others since, obviously, was probably Ben Christ. Uh, because he just, he, he thought on a he would, Ben didn't spend a lot of time with us, okay? I mean, he thought on a whole different level. He was exceedingly creative and productive uh, during his period of time in the sport. Uh, obviously, you could not work for Broadway Bob Metzler and forget that experience, uh, okay? <laughs> and, and I guess uh, one of my favorites was uh, the track operator at Niag- Niagara Airport Drag Strip, um, uh, Dean Johnson, uh, because I Dean Johnson was one of the few guys that I worked for uh, uh, by telephone call. Really? Okay. John, we're having a race. I'm coming. Okay. And there was no problem. And and many times, as you drive through the Midwest, as you're very well aware, uh, in the spring and summer, uh, there's a lot of rain between you and the drag race. Yeah. Okay. And and. I don't care if it was raining in my hometown and it was raining there. Dean asked me to come and announce a drag race. I get in my car and drive from Lansing, Michigan to Niagara Falls, New York, knowing that when I got out of the car, regardless of what happened, there'd be a check wait. Yeah. Okay. And so anytime, any place, anywhere. Um, yeah, and of course, one of the uh, one of the interesting guys I worked for uh, was Gil Cohn at Detroit Dragway. Uh, you know, I had, Brian, I had a uniquely blessed uh, time in the, in the sport of drag racing, particularly uh, during the 10 years that I announced at Detroit Dragway because I got to be there at the beginning, middle, and end of the muscle car area era and the transition from muscle car to super stock to AFS to funny cars. And it was it was one of the tracks in the, in the country where you could see all that happen. Yeah, to me, and um, I'm, I'm, you know, I obviously wasn't there, but you know, as much as I've read and, lo- and kind of studied on history and looked back at things, it would seem to me that like 1965 must have just been a breathtaking year because you literally saw that change happen like on a week to week basis. I mean, you know, you're at Detroit Dragway, you're you're there basically at the Ram Chargers home track. You're there at all the the Skunk Works factory stuff that's going on is happening at Detroit Dragway, and from the beginning of '65 to the end. I mean, you saw you saw the the, the the caterpillar turn into a butterfly. Well, amen. I mean, it it, it began with uh, you know street hemis and, and big black Chevrolets and four twenty seven Fords and 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 uh, it went through the transition from 
uh, super stock to NASCAR's ultra stock uh, to altered altered wheelbase AFX cars, uh, and then of course <laughs> the whole thing kind of headlined uh, with the super stock nationals at York US 30 in August of '65. Yeah, what an amazing, what an amazing era, and what a, what an amazing, you know, you got to narrate the the, the whole deal, which is uh, spectacular, and it's funny because, you know, I was. I used to lament some facts, like I used to lament some things like, oh man, you know, I'm never going to see that happen or I'm never going to see this happen. And then I find myself in moments when, you know, we see somebody set a top field national record. We see somebody do something that we've never seen before, especially with some of the work I do in the outlaw and drag radio side of things. I kind of sit there and go, you know what? Like in my own, I'm seeing it for myself in my own era, which I think is important. Like I no longer lament that I missed the past. I kind of make sure that I, I cherish the, the time that I do have because, you know, what you guys, uh, what you and what Bob have given us and, and Dave McClellan and, and the other voices of your era, you know, you gave us the, you know, the scrolls. You know, you guys are the ones that narrated the the, the sport then. And, and a lot of what we have to go on of, of what happened comes from, you know, either films that you guys made or footage that you're involved in from back then. And uh, it's a really neat thing. And, and, and I'm very thankful to, to have, you know, a friendship with you. I'm very thankful to have a friendship with Bob to to kind of reminisce about some of this stuff with. Um, a question that I asked Bob that I'm, that I'm very interested in asking you as well is, you know, you really saw drag racing transition from, um, and you, you more so than Bob because your career started earlier, but you saw the sport transition from a recreational activity amongst car clubs into a professional-level motorsport and through all those machinations. And I guess for you, is there a year or a let's, set a, let's say a set of three to five years where you saw this thing turn from um, uh, semi-professional into, wow, this is an actual real professional motorsport? Well, I think that would, I'd have to say the, uh, the, the 20-year, 18-year uh, stretch from 1970 to 1988. Sure. Uh, because I got an opportunity to see uh, Don Garlitz, uh run his rear-engine dragster for the first time in open top fuel competition. Uh, and I also got to announce Eddie Hill's 488 pass, or 499 pass, excuse me. And, and that period of time uh, certainly witnessed the transition from, uh, from uh, a sport practiced uh, on tracks that, many tracks that were borderline, uh, to a real professional enterprise, uh, as is and was the Texas Motorplex. Okay? Yeah. And, of course, the sport moved right along with, uh, and uh, I think that... Uh, Getting, getting back to the sport from about a year's vacation in 1987 uh, when I was honored to be part of the NHRA announcing team at four events uh, really gave me uh, a, a refreshed look at how the sport had moved from, as you said, uh, a, a basically sportsman activity uh, to a true professional motorsport. And, uh, and it was just awe-inspiring to be a part of. You saw so much racing, and, and the diversity of the racing you saw is, is, I think, the hallmark of your career. It was not just one single series, as we've mentioned, but it was multiple series and match races and specialty uh, series like the Coca-Cola Cavalcade. How easy was it, or was it easy at all, to identify 
the guys who were going to later become the movers and the shakers. The first time you saw a Don Perdome, did you say, oh, this guy's going to be somebody, or was he just another kid from California that was handy and a pretty good driver? Um, I think uh, uh, the latter rather than the former. Uh, uh, I I had an opportunity to witness the growth of uh, and the flowering of so many that what I tried to do was to give every individual uh, who, who qualified and succeeded uh, basically the same kind of coverage and let the winning results de- uh, determine, uh, you know, who won lauded significantly. Um, and, and as a result of that, I think that the coverage that I gave those guys had a tendency to be more appreciated by the crowd uh, because I didn't try to sell them something that, uh, you know, a bill that wouldn't clear the bank, if you will. Yeah, and, and I think that's great. You know, one of the things that that I've always taken, I've always taken to heart. One of the since I since I started doing this just on a local level is that um, you know honesty in terms of I always I always try to believe that the people watching the race deserve to be talked to honestly, deserve to be um, you know treated honestly or whatnot. And you know, in my current job with NHRA, that occasionally results in uh, in some phone calls from racers on a Monday that don't, maybe don't agree with something I've said or don't agree with the way I've said it. But um, I've never had to apologize for, for lying to anybody or about anybody. And ultimately, all these conversations end in a respectful manner. But to me, it goes back to respect. It goes back to um, you know, I respect the job that the drivers have. I respect the fact that they are professionals and, you know, when they do things that, that don't necessarily equate to professional level performance, we say that. We don't just gloss over it. We mention it because we hold them to a high standard. And I guess I'm wondering in in your era, because you saw this thing go from, not to say it was not professional, but you, you saw it turn into a professional activity from something that wasn't. Um, was that, was that a situation that you ever ran into in terms of racers going, Hey man, why did you say this? Or why would, why would you say that? And, and not well, having... see, during the, during the time, I'm sorry, during the time that I was announcing drag racing events, uh, shall we say that, uh, track security was not uh, a priority. Okay. <laughs> and so, and what that all. <laughs> and and what that also meant that access to the tower was pretty open and free. And so if I said somebody something somebody didn't like or their wife didn't particularly care for, uh, I got told about it right away up close and personal. Okay, and and uh, you know in the process of doing a race, you don't need to be interrupted like that. And and so what I tried to do was to be uh, always kind and gracious and supportive. And unless somebody really screwed up or unless somebody did something that was totally uh, irreversibly wrong, I very seldom spent any time commenting that, on that. Uh, I would, uh, you know, for a time at Orange County International Raceway, it got to be the, 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 uh, the, the habit of the day for those who came there to cause a disruptive effect to... Uh, to uh, streak across the track during competition, uh, <laughs> El Natural, okay? And, 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 and I had a great deal of fun referring to those individuals with highly questionable language, but uh, none of them ever came to the tower in that format to complain. <laughs> 
Man, yeah, that is uh, that was a different era, man. That is a crazy thing, you know. The the Peterson Magazine or Peterson Publishing Company's archive is owned by SEMA now, and they've uh, begun publishing the entire archive of over a million photos. And there's a lot of brilliant stuff in there from a lot of historic races and events. And uh, there's a disclaimer at the front of it that says, "Hey, you may run into some strange photos in here. They're all just you know news photos or whatnot." But yeah, there are some of those races you're scrolling through an event from Lions or from wherever back back in the day, and you move from the picture of a dragster to a guy who has got no pants on running across the racetrack. That is thankfully not something I've ever had to confront. <laughs> so, so anyway, what, what you know, what I always what I always tried to do is what is what kind of quite frankly drew me to you as the as the forthcoming uh, current significant talent in the sport, and that is is that we uh, take a different approach. I re- my, my idols, other than for a couple of neat old drag racing guys that I truly enjoy, uh, were uh, my era's uh, NFL football announcers, in sure. particular Ray Scott, who used to do the Green Bay Packers games. Those guys never interfered what was going on. They never over-aggrandized uh, action and and what they did was they take they took you through the generation of the play and and I believe that's what drew people to watching uh, those kinds of events at that time and I and that those were the kind of guys I modeled my style if you will after yeah and uh, and for me it's uh, it's much the same thing and you know for for drag racing guys. Obviously, I had I have the people that I held in high regard on that front, but for me, it was guys like Keith Jackson, you know, and and again, another question I posed to Bob, which I would love to pose to you and get your response, because his response matched my own personal experience to a T, which is, was this something you wanted to do, or was this something you did and then realized that you really wanted to do it in terms of announcing drag races? Uh, interesting you should ask that question. Um, my first experience announcing a drag race was when Roger Huntington, uh, who was a consultant to the Central Michigan Dragway, invited me up there to just talk about what was going on to me. And, uh, and my first announcing experience was in the right-hand front seat of a Ford station wagon uh, talking through a uh, World War II Beachmaster public address system uh, with portable speaker poles, uh, and midway through the afternoon, uh, the uh, lease metal generator on that Ford engine heated up and overheated the engine, and the engine quit, and we were without a public address system. So uh, <laughs> it happened to be that <laughs> the engineer had a battery-powered micro or a battery-powered megaphone. And so I grabbed the megaphone and, and went across uh, the drag strip, which, by the way, wasn't paid at that point, and, and jumped on top of a flying farmer's hay wagon that was parked beside the track. And that's how yours truly announced the, uh, his first drag race event. Um, so uh, it was after that day, after that day, I knew I wanted to do it. And from that point on, I was sold. Brian, my 30-second elevator speech is this, okay? I'm a former drag racing announcer. I was on my way home from sixth grade in May of 1949 when by me on the street drove a chopped and channel 32 Ford three-window coupe, and I could describe that vehicle to the last nut and bolt to you to this day. 
four years later, I was at the, uh, at the end, or excuse me, two years later, uh, I attended my first drag strip, uh, drag race, excuse me, at Capital City Airport in Lansing, Michigan, and I haven't been the same since. Two year, four years after that, I attended the NHRA Safety Safari at, in Livonia, Michigan, and smelled nitromethane for the first time, and I haven't been the same since. So uh, pretty much from day one, uh, I knew I wanted to talk about drag racing, and uh, and that's what I did. Yeah, it's spectacular, and it's uh, and it falls in line really with what Bob said. And, and you know, he said it's one of those things that I didn't really know I wanted to do it until I did it, and then I never wanted to do another thing ever. And it was Amen. kind of it's kind of the same for me. It was uh, you know I started doing road racing stuff with SCCA as kind of a lark with my buddies in college, and all of a sudden, you know, I was always a drag racing guy, and they just happened to be in a road racing, and that's how I kind of came into it. But yeah, once it is a it is a strange thing that once those whatever the synapses are that fire <laughs> when you're up there, you go. Oh yeah, I could totally get me some more of this, John. I, I really well, appreciate. I, Go ahead. Oh, thank you. I, and, and you know, you asked a little earlier about you know about significant experiences, and I would say that for me, uh, that was the United States Steel and Gas Championships or the March meet at Bakersfield in 1963. I went out there as a ride along with two guys from my town who built a double A fuel modified roadster, and I wanted to hear Bernie. Bernie Mather announced a drag race because I heard he was just unreal. And so while those guys raced their, raced their roadster, I hung out around the timing tower. And on Saturday night, the smokers at Bakersfield uh, used to have a party at a, at a fast restaurant called the Woolgrowers. So things got a little wild. Anyway, Sunday morning, about 10 o'clock, I'm uh, at the tower listening to Al... Uh, Caldwell and Bernie Holdforth, and Bernie leans out of the tower and is very much the worse for wear, okay? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> bad night on Saturday night, and he said, Lumber, you got to come up here and help us. So I did, and he and Caldwell left the tower, and here I am, Brian Christmas, right? So here I am, this young, snotty kid from Michigan, okay, at, at Bakersfield at the U.S. Fuel and Gas Championships, the drag race of the sport at that time, okay? And and in front of me are 20,000 people, okay? And every unlimited bad race car on the planet going to race all day Sunday, okay? And I soared. It was like being the final, the last men standing at, on on, on uh, American Bandstand. Okay, I mean, it was just light. It was a life-changing experience. And, you know, uh, then there was the 65 Superstock Nationals and and other events of that kind that proved to be marvelous. The popular Hot Reading Magazine meets at US 131 Dragway in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, I mean, and through to the 80s. These things just, those are the kind of things that kept me going. No, that's that's spectacular, and and you know my own my own moment of of not anywhere near the magnitude of the March meet, but it was 
you know, working at New England Dragway, the IHRA would come through for the national events every year. Joe Lombardo r- ran the racetrack. He still does. And he would always tell the guys, hey, you got to hear this kid. You got to hear this kid. And, and finally they let me up for, you know, whatever sportsman category it was. And, you know, they handed me the, they handed me the mic and, and it was, it was like you said, it was one of those things where within the first three syllables that came out of your mouth, you knew that you were just going to bury it. And I did. And, uh, it's a great, it's a great feeling. Well, and it's, you know, it's so marvelous to watch not only the sport grow, but the people grow with it. And I, I just have to say, uh, I knew from the, within five minutes of hearing you announce that event at the national hot rod reunion, uh, uh, at Bowling Green, uh, that you were the next guy that was going to climb the tall ladder, and uh, I'm blessed to see that you have actually done that. Well, I appreciate your words more than you could possibly know, John. I appreciate your time as well, and uh, it's very cool to have you here on the NHRA Insider Podcast. I, I think people are really going to love this uh, this broadcast, and I do appreciate you uh, you hanging out and spinning some yarn with me, man. It's great, and I hope things uh, in your retirement are continuing to go well down in Tucson, and Maybe uh, maybe we can make a, a semi-regular habit out of this. I don't want to put you into work too much, but I'd love to hear some more of these stories down the road. Oh, bless your heart. Whenever you're ready, I'm ready, Brian. It's been a pleasure sharing this time with you. Thank you very much, John. It is so cool to be able to speak to a legend like John Lundberg, a guy who has accomplished so much, has learned so much, and has taught me so much over the course of my career. Another legend that I built a tribute for for this show, Dave McClellan, the great voice of the NHRA, one of the greatest voices in the history of motorsports. And what I did was I went back to one of my favorite Dave McClellan race day calls, which is the 1984 U.S. Nationals. It was the race that Big Daddy Don Garlitz and Art Malone got back together. They put a car together. I actually dragged a car out of uh, Garlitz Museum and went out and won Top Fuel Eliminator at Indy in 1984. So what you're going to hear is Dave McClellan calling this race throughout the course of the day, round-by-round eliminations, telling the story. You're also going to hear Connie Coletta. You're going to hear, rather, Don Garlitz. You're going to hear Steve Evans. It is... In my mind, one of his finest performances that I remember as a kid, not not in 1984, but remember watching the the Diamond P videos a little bit later on in my childhood, and I love the way he he spells this story out. I love the emotion in his voice as Garlitz is going rounds, and the introduction to round two. They, to set the scene for you when you're listening to this, you're going to hear round one, and then the introduction to round two. They're coming back from break, and the way that Dave McClellan introduces Don Garlitz into this piece in round two is, to me, one of the most awesomely smooth and descriptive and fun and gravitas lines in drag racing NHRA history. Listen to it and smile. This is my tribute to Dave McClellan on one of his finest days in 1984. Championship drag racing, it's the big one. 
the U.S. Nationals at Indianapolis Raceway Park. Building traditions for 30 years. A total purse topping $1 million is up for grabs, and sometimes racers will try anything to win this race. Moving into competition in the first round of top fuel racing, one of the legends of championship drag racing, Don Garlitz of Ocala, Florida, was paired against a relative newcomer to the sport, Shannon Stewart of Riverside, California. Garlitz had little difficulty in defeating Stewart, but that was the least of his problems. As we can see, Garlitz suffered some engine damage, as indicated by the smoke. No parachute, but more seriously, he lost the left front tire during the run. At over 252 miles an hour, the tire literally spun off the racing wheel. Down the front wheel flies off, the chute doesn't come out, you really had your hands full. Well, the tube wrapped around the wheel and locked the wheel up naturally, and so I couldn't get my hands off the steering wheel. I had all I could do to hold a car on the racetrack. You know, some of the drivers, including Gary Becker, trying to glue these tires on to keep them on. Wheels were glued on. He's won this event five times. It has been five years since he competed over this quarter-mile racing surface. He is considered the innovator of the sport. Given credit for creating the first workable rear-engine top-fuel dragster. His name, Don Garlitz. He hails from the state of Florida, and his fans, they are legion, and they call him Big Daddy. Big Daddy Don Garlitz returning to competition at Indianapolis Raceway Park and the U.S. Nationals for the first time in five years holds top speed of the meet at over 261 miles an hour. In this second round race, he will be competing against Howard Haight of Pomona, California. Earlier this morning, Steve had a chance to talk to Big Daddy Don Garlitz about his return to NHRA competition and to Indianapolis Raceway Park. Well, Don, after a five-year absence, you returned to the U.S. Nationals here at Indianapolis, and you didn't come to just play. 261 miles an hour got their attention. Well, we came here with the intention of winning the race. Uh, you know, of course, anything can happen in a race, but, I mean, that's was, we wasn't here just for the beer. Garlitz and Malone. I haven't said that for 25 years. 59 or 60 the last time you two teamed up. That's true. It has its the 25-year uh, anniversary. Uh, Malone called me on the phone. And he says, uh, you know, I'd like to go to Indy. Are you going to Indy? I said, no, you know, it costs so much money. He said, well, how about if I sponsor you to Indy? And I said, that's the greatest news I've heard in a long time. Let's do it. Garlitz teaming up with his longtime partner and friend, Art Malone, for this venture into U.S. Nationals competition. In round number two, he's racing against Howard Haight. 261 miles an hour already to the credit of Big Daddy Don Garlitz. Howard Haight with his work cut out for him, racing one of the true legends in the sport of championship drag racing. It's Garlitz off the mark first. He's got a big lead right off the starting line, and at the finish, he extends it. The elapsed time for Garlitz, 5.61 seconds. His speed is slowing 234 miles an hour. And again, it appears to be some engine problems for Garlitz. There's lots of work for them back in the pits, the Garlitz and Malone team. Now let's go down and join Steve Evans with Don Garlitz. You certainly haven't lost a touch in the last five years. That's two down, Don. Well, it's, the car's running pretty good. She's a little loose on the top end, though. I guess, you know, the rain and everything. The engine come up twice, and I, I actually lifted a little early, so the speed was probably down. Spinning the tires towards the finish line? Uh-huh, yeah. Well, that parachute is sure lazy. We waited again holding our breath. Well, you know, I was so rattled from the run before when I lost the wheel, I, I held onto the, the steering wheel for a while because that's where the big jerk comes when the tire comes off. And 
I realized, heck, I'm holding on to this wheel. I should be letting this shoot out. <laughs> okay, we'll see you down here in round number three. Don Garlic, Howard Hay. And congratulations, Big Daddy. Here's a man that Garlitz raced in the early days of drag racing, another of the veterans of the sport, Connie Coletta. His competition here in round number two of Top Fuel Racing is Frank Bradley. Bradley, hailing from Napa, California, was the winner of the recent NHRA Summer Nationals. For Connie Coletta, his career in drag racing goes back to his first ever NHRA championship win. That dated back to 1967. Just as competitive today as he has ever been, and many people regard this 46-year-old veteran is at the peak of his career, driving better today than he has at any time in history. For Frank Bradley, he proved once again he has the combination to his top fuel dragster qualifying on one pass through the quarter mile. The burnout procedures are completed. Both drivers approach the staging beams and leave the starting line. And it is Coletta and Bradley side by side. Coletta begins to pull away. And by a couple of car lengths at the finish line, Coletta taking the win at 5.72 seconds. His speed topping 240 miles an hour. Connie Coletta advances now into the semifinals of top fuel competition at the U.S. Nationals. Let's go once again down to Steve. A county of 572 gets you through the second round, but I know you'd like to have gone quicker. Yeah, I need to. Amato's going to run awful quick right now. He ran 46 earlier today, and I mean, that's that's a stout number here. That's the quickest run here, I think, in quite a while. If Amato gets through this round, uh, you'll face him the, in the semi? I run him next round, and the lane choice is very important here right now. We're shaking very bad in the right-hand lane, and uh, I backed the car off because I didn't know for sure it was my race car or not, but it looks like it's the track that's doing it. It's not your particular race car that's suffering that problem? No, in the first round, just about everybody in the right-hand lane shook very hard. Uh, the only one that didn't was the miner that got he got down there very good. At Indianapolis Raceway Park in the 30th annual running of the U.S. Nationals, I'm Dave McClelland along with Steve Evans, and all eyes are on the starting line as we're set for the semi-final round of Top Fuel Eliminator. Here is Big Daddy Don Garlitz. He is at the U.S. Nationals for the first time in five years. It was 20 years ago that Big Daddy won his first ever U.S. Nationals title back in 1964. He's racing against Larry Miner, a relative newcomer to top fuel racing. Miner, the car owner of that all-star racing team with three cars in competition. He's the only one left, and Garlitz is pulling ahead at the finish line and puts out Larry Miner. It's Don Garlitz into the finals of the U.S. Nationals, and Larry Miner having problems with his parachute, but he seems to be bringing the car to a safe stop. For Don Garlitz, a great run in the semifinals, 5.56 second elapsed time, his speed over 254 miles an hour. As we look again, Garlitz had pulled ahead by the middle of the racetrack. He continued to hold that lead until the finish line, and by one car length, Don Garlitz advances to the finals, defeating Larry Miner. Garlitz very composed as he comes out of the car, taking off his helmet and shaking over his engine. Well, after a five-year absence, Big Daddy goes into the final with a 5.56, and a good race it was. Yes, it was. It was a real good race. I, he actually was right out there to about the eighth mile, and it just kind of pulled away. I guess I had a little higher top speed. And the engine looks just fine, dry, not a drop of oil out of it. 
Yeah, I had one little problem. A throttle cable was breaking up there, and we just barely got it fixed. Well, the chute worked this time. Everything worked this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm real happy, really. Let's go back to the starting line and see just who Don Gerlitz is going to race in that final round. Gene Snow or Connie Coletta? It's all veterans. Connie Coletta in the near lane. A former funny car racer moving into the crew chief role for Shirley Muldowney when she won her first world championship, then back into driving and driving better than ever. For Gene Snow, a former funny car racer, over 20 years experience in the sport. Snow now campaigning his top fuel dragster out of his home base in Fort Worth, Texas. Snow up in smoke and Coletta beginning to extend the lead. Can he hold on to it at the finish line? A close race and the wing comes off of Snow's car. Snow with the parachute out, keeps the car under control as it bounces to a safe stop. But the win goes to Connie Coletta and two veterans in the final, Don Garlett against Connie Coletta. With the final in top fuel eliminator, 52 years old, Big Daddy Don Garlett against his longtime friend and competitor, 46-year-old Connie Coletta. Some 50 years of drag racing experience between these two drivers. Never before in the finals of any NHRA national event have two veterans with this much experience met to decide a title as important as the U.S. Nationals. It was 20 years ago that Big Daddy Don Garlitz won his first ever U.S. Nationals title. That and four other victories combined to make him one of the crowd favorites, as Steve found out earlier. Look at all of these shining faces uh, watching Don Garlitz and crew put the black car back together again for the final round at the U.S. Nationals. And also looking on is Pat Garlitz. What an incredible day this has been. It certainly has. I just couldn't have dreamed that it could be this great. What, so went, far. what went through your mind uh, when Don sat you down and said, Pat, we're going back and we're going back seriously? <laughs> well, at first I didn't believe him. But the more they started ordering pieces for the car and working, then I knew we were going to Indy. And yes. we're building a house, and we're right in the middle of moving in. And he said, just leave the boxes, leave all the unpacking until we get back from Indy. Steve, that just shows you everything takes a backseat when Big Daddy goes racing. And racing he is against Connie Coletta, the finals in top fuel eliminator. Based on performance, it's got to be the edge to Garlitz, but we've seen upset throughout this day. And off the starting line they come. Up in smoke goes Coletta. It may be the advantage Garlitz needs. And it is Don Garlitz, his sixth U.S. Nationals title and a tremendous victory as Big Daddy has returned to championship competition. The partnership with Art Malone getting off to a great start with a U.S. Nationals victory. As we watch again, both cars leave on the green light. It is Garlitz in the near lane, Coletta in the far lane, and the tires begin to smoke on Coletta's car, indicating the loss of traction, giving a slight advantage to Garlitz. He continues to pull ahead, and at the finish line, a big victory. Don Garlitz wins the U.S. Nationals, goes home with top speed of the event, a magnificent return to NHRA drag racing. Thank you, Steve. I've had a wonderful weekend, and I've enjoyed myself tremendously. It's been great to be back. And it's great to have you back, and we look forward next year to a new car, aerodynamics, the kind of thinking only you bring to this sport. Well, I hope so. Art has injected a lot of, uh, you know, given me enthusiasm to have him come along and put the money where the most people's mouth is and 
get me here and buy the parts so we're capable of performing with these people, which proves that uh, you just got to have the technology. And to have an old friend, a guy who's been racing almost as long as you have in the final. What a great moment. Well, you know, Connie and I go back a long, long time. Uh, you know, he and I, uh, I, I met him when he was 17 years old. Seto Pastoian and I were going to California for the big Bakersfield Challenge, and he was a 17-year-old kid with his 57 Chevy and had a bunch of parts from Chrysler. Well, I think Pat right now doesn't mind at all leaving all those boxes in that new house. I know. <laughs> Congratulations again. He certainly is Big Daddy. And so that, as they say, is that with regard to our tribute to Dave McClelland and that awesome job he did back in 1984. Awesome job he did at every race, but I just particularly love the 84 race. The story of Garlitz and Malone coming back. The car comes out of the museum and the energy in his voice uh, throughout the entirety of that piece I just uh, absolutely love. So thank you for listening to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. It is no surprise that the announcer episode would be probably the longest one we've ever made and may ever make. But hey... We're guys that like to talk, and I hope that you enjoyed this look into the backgrounds and the personal lives of two great men in the sport of drag racing that helped to shape the modern version of the job that I do and so many others do across the country. They're not only inspirational in terms of their success, but they're educational in terms of what they've taught all of us through their actions and to their, through their ability. Once again, go to NHRA.com to check on the NHRA 2020 schedule. Tentatively, our race season begins the first weekend in June with the professional categories at the Gator Nationals. Cross your fingers, socially distance, do something and make sure this thing goes away by the time we get to June because all of us, and I mean all of us, want to go back to drag racing. On behalf of everybody at the NHRA, I'm Brian Loans. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with more on the NHRA Insider Podcast.